All right, well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you would turn with me in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 this morning. Genesis 2 and 3. And if you remember last week, we began a series, a view of the Bible from 30,000 feet. Um, we're walking through the, the meta narrative or the overarching story of Scripture. And we're looking at that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we're going to see how the Bible is one story that is united together and it's centered on Jesus. And so that's what we're looking at through this particular series, the six week series. We're in week number two. And uh, unfortunately, we, we have to get the bad news before we get to the good news. And so the bad news is this week we are looking at the fall. The fall of man. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what that is and what that means as we work through this text this morning. So hopefully you found your place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we will dive in to the text this morning. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a church, both here and at home, Lord. And we ask that, that today this message would speak to us, Lord. We would understand who we are. and We would understand why it is that, that we need Jesus, why a Redeemer had to come for us. And Lord, we ask that if anyone doesn't know Jesus this morning, whether they're here, whether they're listening online, that you would begin working in their hearts even now as we begin this message so that you might call them to yourself, Lord. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Seminary, he puts out this daily podcast and it is entitled The Briefing. And in each podcast, he takes two to three different topics from some of the, the top headlines of, of the week or, or the, the top newspapers from that week. And his goal is to help you think about those topics from a Christian worldview. And, and I've been listening to this podcast for several years now, and it's been immensely helpful in helping me develop a Christian worldview, especially as I'm looking out at, at what the world is saying and how should I look at those things that the world is saying through the lens of God's Word. And so if, if you haven't listened to this podcast or you don't look at that, I would certainly encourage you to do so. I'll place a link on our Facebook page this week so that you can check it out. But it's been super helpful for me. And it's been a, a few years now, but in one episode, he, Moeller covered an article from Alexander DeSanctis in the National Review. And, and the person of interest in this article was actress Lena Dunham. And on her podcast, she told of this story about when she was visiting a Planned Parenthood in Texas. And, and on her podcast, uh, she told this story. She told the story of this young girl who came up to her while she was there. And she said, look, I'm doing... Uh, person of interest piece, uh, and, and I want you to be a part of that. I want you to tell your abortion story. And she said that when she heard that, she kind of jumped back, and she's like, I've never, I've never had an abortion. I didn't, I didn't have a, a story to tell. She'd always been a big proponent for women's rights to choose, but, but she had never had an abortion. But then, and, 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 and here comes the really troubling part, after telling about her encounter with this girl, she then goes on to say that, that she wishes that she had had an abortion so that she would not be unblemished in that department so that she would have a story to tell. Now, if you think about it, I mean, that is an appalling 
statement. She wishes that she had had an abortion so she could be the type of person that expresses herself as having had an abortion. Now, as conservative evangelicals, we, we naturally recoil at Denham's statement. It's clear violation of God's created order. We are made in the image of God. That doesn't mean that we look like God. God is God is spirit. Instead, it means that, that we are His representatives. Remember from last week, we are to be kingly priests who administer God's kingly rule over the earth and serve Him according to His wisdom. And as the big K king, the all-sovereign God of this universe, God has decreed that, that murder is wrong. And that's exactly what abortion is. It is murder. And that is the, the sixth of the Ten Commandments. It's a clear violation of God's rule. And, and we are quick as, as conservative evangelicals to, to agree with that, to call it what it is. But what about the white lie that you told at work the other day so that you could just cover some things up? Or the pornographic website you visited recently when you couldn't sleep at night? And what about the hatred that you have for another race or another culture? Or what about divorce? Did you know that, that Christians have a divorce rate of around 50%? If you add Catholics into the mix, then it goes up to 70%. Now, sure, as evangelicals, we fare a bit better, right? We're at, we're at 28%. But when you compare the evangelical rate of divorce to that of non-Christian religions, we are woefully, woefully behind. They are only at 5%. Admittedly, these statistics don't take into the account the, the biblical exceptions for the divorce, that being adultery and, and a, a non-believing spouse leaving a other spouse because they have become a believer. But while those statistics don't take into account those exceptions, the rate is still high and we accept it as if it's just another part of, of our natural lives. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't forgiveness. I don't want you to hear me say that there, there, there is forgiveness for those who have been divorced, particularly for those who have been divorced in a way that, that doesn't meet the biblical exceptions. It doesn't mean that, that divorcees can never uh, participate in ministry, right? It's not like you're just put on a shelf because you've been divorced and you can never minister to anybody else, right? I mean, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. But apart from the two biblical reasons for divorce, it is a violation of God's good design for marriage. Now, we can keep going down the list of ways in which we rebel against God, but hopefully you get the point. Rebellion against God and His right to rule in this world exists. It exists in big ways. It exists in, in small ways. We cast off what we are created to do to act as kingly priests who worship God as His representatives, administering His kingly rule over this world as little K kings while faithfully serving God in accordance with His Word. That's what we are called to do. We talked a lot about that last week in our, in our first message. So if you missed that message, I invite you to go back and, and check that out. But now the question is, how do we get to this place? How do we get to a place where a young actress wishes that she had an abortion? How do we get to a place where we openly and, and cavalierly reject God's rule in our lives? Well, when we turn to God's Word we see that it started with a tree and a lie. If you remember from last week, after God created Adam in, in, verses two, two, in chapter 2, verse 15, he said, He took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
Now, at this time, Eve hadn't been created, but, but God, he, he places Adam in the garden and he tells him to, to work it and keep it. In other words, God wants him in the garden. He wants him to exercise dominion over this world as if to take it somewhere, as well as he wants him to worship him by serving according to his wisdom. That was Adam's job. That is what, what Adam is to do. That's what God wanted him to do. That's why he placed him in the garden. Now, placing him in the garden, he just gives him one restriction. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let I me mean, picture this. Adam could enjoy this beautiful garden that God has created. He could enjoy anything in that garden except for one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if he ate it he would surely die now god did not give him this restriction in order to to punish him that is far from the case and said god gave him this restriction to warn him i mean could you imagine if god just placed him in the garden and he said hey you can eat of anything you want and god knew that if he ate of this one tree well things would not go well for him and god didn't warn him of that but God doesn't do that. God is a good and loving God. And so God places him in the garden. And after he places him in the garden, he warns him, do not eat of this tree. Things are not going to go well for you. I want you to flourish. I want you to enjoy my good creation. Do not eat of this one tree. But God not only wanted to protect Adam, he was also testing him. He wanted to, to know if Adam would recognize that he was the one who was in charge, that he was living in, in his kingdom. In God's kingdom, it is God that gets to set the rules. It is God that gets to set the terms. It is God that gets to define what is good and evil. Would, would Adam allow God to, to do these things, recognizing his rightful place as a little K king? Or would Adam seek to usurp God's throne, seeking to take it for himself? Would Adam define good and evil according to his own wisdom? Or would he submit to God and his wisdom? With this one command, Adam sets about working and keeping it in God's good creation. But after a while, God realizes that, that Adam is all alone, that he doesn't, he doesn't have a helper for him. And so he, he, the, the Trinity, they, they gather together and, and God says to the, the Son and God says to the, the Spirit, God the Father says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And he does just that. God creates Eve to be Adam's wife and helper. And for a while... After Eve was created, things were going really well in the garden. Adam, Adam had a companion. Adam had a helper. They were, they were going about. They were working it and they were keeping it. Things were going really, really well in God's garden. The end of chapter 2, we're told the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Their relationship with God and one another was, was perfect. And this is how chapter 2 ends, which leaves you to wonder... Just how long are things going to continue this way? Well, we don't have to wonder too much longer because the very next chapter, we see that Eve encounters a crafty serpent. Chapter 3 begins with these words, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Right off of the bat, we're introduced to the serpent. And the serpent is said to be, be crafty, that, that he is skilled in the art of deception. That's exactly what he's going to seek to do. 
And the first thing that this, this crafty character does is he comes in and he challenges God's character. He challenges God's Word. With a well-placed question in verse 1, he said to the woman, How did God, did, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, instead of ignoring the serpent, instead of running to get Adam and, and seek his counsel and wisdom and, and them talking about what the serpent is saying here, instead of acting as, as a team, Eve responds to the serpent. In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And with that, the serpent has her hooked and he begins to reel her in. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the serpent is not only challenging God's word to them, he is challenging God's character to them. He tells Eve that, that God is a liar, that God is holding back on them, that they could be so much more without God, that they could reach their true and, and highest potential. That they could be kings of their own kingdom. Why settle for serving underneath God when you can set the rules yourself? When you can make this world what you want it to be? The irony in all of this is that they're already like God. At the pinnacle of their potential, they were created in the image of God, and God has, has given them dominion over the entire earth. But Eve didn't recognize what she had, and so we, we always use that phrase, the grass is greener on the other side, and I guess that is true even in the Garden of Eden. Not recognizing what she had, the crafty serpent convinced Eve that God was, was holding out on her, that he was keeping something from them, something that they needed in order to be whole, something they needed in order to be complete. And the remedy for their sickness, for their blindness, was the forbidden fruit, which ultimately represented rebellion against God. And what is Eve's response? Well, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so Eve gives into the serpent's temptation. She eats of the fruit. And then she goes and she leads her husband to do the same. And what was the result of their actions? Well, verse 7 then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Just as the serpent said, their, their eyes were open, but, but they didn't die immediately. And while that was true, their relationship with one another and, and God had changed. Instead of living in a, in a healthy and productive relationship with one another, their relationships changed. They ended up experiencing shame. Shame before God and one another. They, they actually felt their rebellion against God. They knew that they had transgressed this line. For the first time, they were vulnerable and they were closed off to one another and to God. But Adam and Eve's lost it in the end with shame. Look at Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And not only did they feel shame, but they also experienced fear. Instead of meeting with God in the garden like they would regularly do, and they would, they would walk with Him in the cool of the garden, and they would continue their relationship with God, Adam and Eve are afraid of God. They realize that they deserve punishment for, for what they had done. Eating the fruit amounted to them storming God's throne room and seeking to take God off of His throne and set themselves there on that throne. They knew that was wrong. They felt shame for their actions and they feared the punishment that would result. And our society feels this as well. I mean, this is why you see such a push, even in in today's culture, such a push to rid Christianity from our culture, from our society right if we if we can if we can get rid of any semblance of christianity if we can get rid of any semblance of the god of the bible the one who has created us well then we need not fear him we need not be shamed of our actions this is why people push and push and push in certain directions trying to push the boundaries as they transgress against god what is happening in our culture, particularly when it comes to sexual identity. I mean, this is a a transgressing of of God's created order. And it's purposeful. It is to seek to say, I can push the envelope and God will do nothing about it. It's purposeful. Not only did Adam and Eve experience shame, fear, and breakdown in their relationship with God, they suffered a breakdown in their relationship with each other. In an answer to God's question in verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, it is your fault, God. You gave me this woman. The wo- I was, everything was going great. We had a great relationship. I didn't go anywhere near the tree. Then she came along. Come on, God. Come on, Eve. I mean, look what you did, Eve. He's shifting the blame to God. He's shifting the blame to Eve. And Eve does the same thing. Instead of admitting her guilt, she shifts the blame to the serpent. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said in verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And while that is true, the serpent did deceive her. She was still, still to blame. She broke God's command and even led her husband to do the same. Deceived by the serpent, they not only experienced shame, but they also experienced a broken relationship with God and one another, which led to fear and to blame shifting. And on top of all of that, Adam and Eve experienced the curse. In verse 14, God curses the serpent. And then in verse 15, he starts in with the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To the woman... The curse brought pain and relational fights. But Eve wasn't the only one who experienced the curse. Adam, he's he's culpable. He failed to trust in God. He failed to to rightly lead his wife to do the same. And so God turns to Adam in verse 17 and he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
And so women, while you have Eve to thank for, for pain in, in, in childbirth, in relational fights with your husband, men, you have Adam to thank for, for all of the hard work that we have to do in order to put food on the table. As if that wasn't enough, God kicked them out of the garden. We learn in verse 23 that the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if you ask me, Adam and Eve experienced a pretty big loss for what they considered to be gain. But that is always what sin does. Sin lets us down. It promises us satisfaction and fulfillment. It promises us freedom and identity. But the promises that it promises are empty. Sin cannot ultimately deliver on its promises. And just as Adam and Eve experienced a loss because they believed the lie, we experience a loss too. When we seek wisdom apart from, from God, when we fail to act as God's kingly priests and His representatives, rejecting His reign and rule over our lives, believing that we can and we should be able to determine what is right and wrong for our own, operating as big K kings instead of little K kings, when we do that, we are believing a lie just as Adam and Eve believed a lie. A lie that results in shame and fear and severed relationships, the breakdown of the family, pain. It results in sweat and toil and ultimately eternal death resulting in suffering God's punishment. And we have all inherited this curse. Because of the fall of Adam, God's image on us is marred. We receive corrupted and sinful natures. Paul talks about this in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then down in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then 18 and 19, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We see there in the midst of that hope in the gospel that we're going to begin talking about next week. But we also see here that, that we are fallen. That we are, we are dead in our sins. That we are separated from God. We now wear Adam's fallen nature on us. And as a result, Adam's guilt is, is imputed to us. It is a, attributed to us. It is as if we have done it. The same as when we begin to talk about Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. It is credited to our account. We have done nothing to receive Jesus' righteousness, but we gain it. The same thing happens with Adam. We have done, in some sense, nothing at the beginning to, do, to, to gain that. But because Adam is our federal representative, because he is the head of the human race, we gain his sin. It is imputed to our account, and we deserve the same punishment that Adam deserved. Adam's guilt and condemnation before and against God is passed on to us because he represents us all. We all experience condemnation because of Adam. We were made sinners 
And because of our sinful nature, we see that we sin and we transgress God's rule. And that's what the, what the issue with this world is. We are infected with sin and we can't help but sin. We can't help but rebel against God. And this is why we need someone to come in and, and provide a fix for that. Because of our sinful nature, we continue in rebellion to God. And because of Adam, we experience the curse. The experience, the, the curse that should drive us to the end of ourselves. But that is often not the case. I mean, we experience the hardships of this world. We experience the curse. We experience sin and relationship with one another and, and with God. We experience all of these things that Adam and Eve experienced and all those who have come before us have experienced, but yet we do not run to God. We continue to run away from Him thinking that if we could just get far enough away like Jonah or thinking that if we could just transgress so far that, that God can't touch us, and that we can set up our own kingdom apart from Him. But that's not what happens. Man continues to do that, to seek God's throne and to find what is good himself. But our desire to be big K kings and to find what is good only serves to create more chaos and disorder in this world. Continuing through the Genesis narrative reveals this to be true. After Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, they have two sons. You're familiar with them most likely, Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain kills Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. And Cain reveals the outworkings of what happens when we live according to our own rule and seek our own definition of good. We kill those who get in our way. And then you have Lamech who comes after Cain. And Lamech continues to show us what happens when we take things into our own hands. Women become property, and punishment ends up being disproportionate to the crime. And by the time we get to Noah, we see that man reigning and ruling according to his own definition of goodness has produced nothing but wickedness and evil, so much so that, that God regretted creating man. He determines to erase them along with the animals from the face of the earth. And he does just that except for one man, his family, and two of every kind of animal. In the ark, God preserves Noah's life. And after the flood subsides, he restarts the world with Noah. Noah becomes essentially a new Adam. He becomes a new representative of, of the human race. But... While God starts over with Noah and his family, they, they cannot experience the curse that Adam plunged us into. After a time, Noah begins to sin again. He's found in his tent drunk on the wine that the Lord had given him to enjoy. And his son Ham seeks to exploit the father's shame for his own gain. And he does all of this because the world and we are polluted by sin. Everything in it is polluted by sin. Noah, his family, the animals, the earth itself groans for the Redeemer to come. Right. And while Noah and his family are corrupted by the fall, they aren't the last. The world grows even more sinful as the population continues to grow. You remember God said, I will never destroy the earth in the same way again like I did with Noah. And so because of that, sin just continues to run rampant. 
As we seek to rule as big K kings in this world, as we seek to operate according to our own definition of what is good and what is right, the pinnacle of man's efforts to rule and, and to determine you know, what is right and wrong in his own eyes is, is the Tower of Babel. Instead of operating according to God's creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, to work it and keep it, to spread out over the entire world and, and to, to take this world somewhere for God's glory, man decides, I'm not doing what you want me to do, God. I'm going to stay right here on this plane and we're going to show you that we can create something amazing. We can create this amazing city and we can build huge skyscrapers like the world has never seen before. We will make a name for ourselves, God. But in God's providence, He foils their plan. He confuses their language so that they have to scatter out over the entire world. And so we see our attempt to usurp God's rule and live according to our own definition of good doesn't result in the good life. Instead, it results in chaos and disorder as we rebel against God and sin against one another. Which tells us that God's good creation has turned into a place of, of disorder. It's turned into a place of, of chaos because we have rebelled against God. We have rejected His reign and His rule, His wisdom and His direction, His definition of what is good and just and right, and we have replaced it with our own. Because we have forgotten that we live in God's kingdom, we have sought to rule as if we are kings according to our own definition of what is good and right. We live in a world where sin runs rampant and it is celebrated. We live in a broken world. A world that cries out for redemption. A world that needs to be fixed. And as chapter 11 ends, we are left wondering, how is this world going to be fixed? How is this world going to be redeemed? Man is so utterly sinful. They want nothing to do with God. How is this world going to be fixed? How are we going to be redeemed from the curse? If Genesis 3 through 11 reveals anything to you, it should reveal to you that we are not the answer. Technological advancements, medical advancements, all of those things, societal advancements, those things are not the answer. We are not the answer. We need something, really, we need someone who can make us right. Someone who is completely different than us. Someone who has not been affected by the fall. We need the perfect king and priest who lives according to the Father's will. We need Jesus who comes and suffers and dies on our behalf. Who, who dies because of the curse and he lifts the curse of death from us so that we might be brought into the kingdom of God, not as captured enemies, but as sons and as daughters who once again recognize their rightful place in this world as little K kings and priests who are to represent God, who are to exercise dominion, and who are to serve according to God's wisdom for God's glory. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the one that we need. He is the one that the biblical story points to. He is the one who gave all for you, and you can experience the hope of Jesus this morning if you are are willing to repent of your sin and if you are willing to turn and believe in Jesus Amen. as your Lord and as your Savior. Don't experience shame and fear and relational breakdown any longer. Turn to Jesus. Don't seek your identity in the things of this world any longer. Turn to Jesus. Seek Him and experience true forgiveness and true identity. And if you are a believer here this morning, if you're a believer watching this morning, continue to rest in the Lord. 
Practice daily repentance and seek God's face. The crafty serpent, he is out to deceive you as well. Sin is crouching at the door. And it is ready to spring on you at any moment. Don't open the door to sin. Don't throw your identity in Christ off. Rest in your identity in Christ. Jesus provides us with identity. Don't seek to be the big K king. Seek to be the little K king. The fall has affected us all, but as we will see in the coming weeks, Christ has redeemed us from the fall. As believers, we can live out our purpose, which we have been designed to do. We can represent God as kingly priests. And so let's do that. And while this morning we're not going to have our, our normal time of response where we will open up the altars because of all this social distancing that we're doing now with COVID-19, if you have questions, if you want prayer, if you want to talk more about the gospel, I will be outside after the service. If it's raining, I'll be underneath the portico. Feel free to come and, and talk with me. I would love to share more with you about Jesus. I would love to pray with you. I would love to talk more about the Savior that we should worship. And next week, we will begin looking at God's plan of redemption in more depth. But this week, this week, let's remember that we have been affected by the fall and that Jesus is our only hope. So let's rest in Jesus. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to gather together as the church, both here and at home, Lord. God, we, we recognize who we are. We are wretched, broken sinners. And God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has saved us. We thank you, Lord, that he has come to redeem us, God. And we pray that we would rest in that if we were believers here today, that we would find our identity in him. And Lord, if anyone does not know you, continue to work in their hearts. Continue to draw them to yourself so that they might experience redemption from the curse, so that they might experience true identity as well, Lord, so that they might have hope in Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.